Hey guys, this is Max and Jason Watch a Movie, episode 5.5, wherein we finish our discussion of Superman the Movie from way back in 1978. When last we spoke, which should have been at the end of episode 5, uh, we were talking about the death of Jonathan Kent and the Smallville section of the film. And we pick up pretty much right where that left off. So here's the movie without further ado. Thanks, guys. I think it's kind of interesting. Dar- Donner, and I'm going to, I don't know if I'll keep coming back to this, but I want you guys to hear me say this. Donner has a lot of respect for the audience. He pulls back, and the shot of Martha and Clark running to Jonathan, but strangely, the dog, by the way, runs into the barn. The dog does not give a fuck what just happened. But uh, Clark and Martha uh, are tracking what's relevant. Um, they run out, and it's a, it's a long shot. We are far away from their tragedy. It's almost like Donner's like, you guys know what they're saying, but this is kind of a private moment. Yeah. And, and he does a lot of things where he respects the audience's intelligence. But that scene, I thought, was just as effective as anything John Ford ever did, as anything as any other great Western director did. But I liked that scene a lot. Um, anyway, I've, I've yacked for a bit. Take over. Uh- well, I, I think the entire Kansas, because then we go from there to the funeral yep. uh, in the Smallville graveyard with, yep. with just two people, it seems, in attendance in addition yeah, to them. They're, they're back in the background. There's something very small-time, old-time America about that. The, the, the spectacle of this film is really much, much larger than what Donner usually does. Yeah. Donner yeah, doesn't really absolutely. do sprawling films. No. But he's very good at it. He is. Uh, yeah. Uh, another thing, um, the score changes again. There's there's no Superman theme no. In, in this section, as there wasn't on Krypton. But now we have kind of this kind of very American, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Aaron Copeland kind of music, the big American composer from the time. And uh, there's lots of echoes of his of his composing style in in the music in this in these scenes, which really colors everything. And I know that uh, I'd seen Tom Mankiewicz said that it was it was intentionally done to kind of do this contrast from you're on Krypton and everything's the whites and the blacks that you're talking about, and then when you're in Smallville, it's all Andrew Wyeth. You mentioned Norman Rockwell. It, it's that kind of feel. Mm-hmm. And if you ever see an Andrew Wyeth painting, you get that kind of that kind of perspective on the horizon and so forth. So the, the, that middle act is full of, of that kind of composition, which is just glorious to look oh, at. Well, the, the, it's interesting because we, we, you've talked about how Donner is very conscious of the horizon in everything that happens in Kansas, no matter where you're at, whether you're on the football field at Smallville High or you're at the funeral home. The funeral, not the funeral home, but the, the, the cemetery is, 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 a, is a tighter composition, but you can still see kind of the rolling Kansas hills, which is all shot in Canada, I guess. But, but everybody, but everybody it, it, for the purposes of the film, it looks exactly like the Kansas I've seen. Um, uh, it's big sky country, which I think would have been perfect for a kid with Clark's gifts. I mean, it's, a, it's, I have to imagine that Jor-El intended some of this. He's a Krypton scholars know a lot about the universe, it seems, and he knew a lot about Earth. 
when Clark is about to leave. So after his father dies, we don't know how much time has passed. We know that he's 18 and he starts feeling this pull towards the barn that he hasn't felt before. And he uncovers the green crystal that Jorel put in his ship. Well, that's the only thing that the parents took for some reason. I mean, it, it was, it was, it makes some sense because it was differentiated from everything else. Right. Right. Everything else on Clark's ship is like kind of a, almost a diamond like crystal except for the green crystal that he, he also adds. Um, and Clark feels the pull of that. We'll find out why later. The last shot of Kansas is now, uh, sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit. I wasn't following closely. There's a scene in the movie that I just watched. I just watched the director's cut today. Martha's running around telling Clark to wake up. Is that in the theatrical cut? No. Okay, so so she's, so Martha Kent, this is sometime after Pa's death. She's like, wake up, Clark, wake up, Clark. It's early morning. Are you going to sleep all day? This is a farmer talking because the sun has not fucking risen. Are you going <laughs> to sleep all day, Clark? It's not even, the sun hasn't even risen. I would have, I would have yelled at my mom. It's not even morning. What are you talking about? But she's telling Clark to get up. And then she sees him out on this purple horizon. You know, she, he's far away from the house and she knows that he's found, she knows it's time. She didn't know when it was going to be. But like you said, both Ma and Pa can't know that Clark is there for some reason. I think they're mistaken about that a little bit. I think Jorel's biggest purpose in sending Clark there was to hopefully have him find some nice people to raise him, you know? Yeah. But they knew he was going to have to go on the journey that we all take when we leave home, right? Yeah. Anyway, she sees him out on the horizon. It's a beautiful shot. And she knows what it means. We don't yet know what it means. We know he's thinking about something and she follows him up. By the time she gets out there, this is how far away he is from the house. He's out in this wheat field. And then we see it, he's out. Uh, it's, the sun is fully risen by the time she gets out to him. They don't speak for a moment. She says, well, I knew we knew this time was going to come. But what I want to talk about is how glorious that horizon shot and Mark yes. Kent on that field is. It is every John Ford movie. It is every... Uh, I mean, I think, I think of Americana when I see that scene. And it's a touching scene. Uh, I can't say enough about it. Maybe you can say some more. Yeah, well, and, and the wind is kind of blowing on the, I don't know if it's wheat or whatever, but it's, yeah. and then the camera kind of comes up and, and kind of spins away from them. We just see the wind, you know, hitting yeah. the wheat and uh, the, the horizon. And then, and then the music swells. It's a wonderful way to end, to leave Kansas, basically. Absolutely. And to me, I think, again, this comes back to that efficient filmmaking that's going on. The Kansas stuff isn't very long. No, it's not. I mean, I bet it can't be more than 30 minutes of screen time. I, I would agree with that. And, you know, I, I don't know if you complimented it. I mean, you pointed out that that scene with uh, Pa Kent, that that had to kind of stand in for Clark's entire upbringing. Yeah. But it does. Oh, it's I mean, perfect. I, I, I don't know oh if you God. said that, but it, it nails that completely. Everything that we need to know about their relationship, emotionally especially, mm -hmm. is conveyed in that uh, uh, short span. But also the conversation with Ma Ken. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, by the yeah. way, as, as an aside, I believe he says, uh, I talked to Ben Hubbard. Uh, I don't know if Ben Hubbard was ever in the comic. Oh, I don't but know. I do, but I do know that I believe, I think it's in the Smallville television show. Okay. They, they incorporated the character of Ben Hubbard. Well, I mean, 
Quick sidebar, because I got curious as I was editing. Ben Hubbard was not a character that was ever in the comic books. He was created by one of the scriptwriters for Superman the movie. But because of his, just the mention of him, he's popped up in other Superman media. I don't know if he's ever been in the comic books, but he has been in Smallville, as Jason said. Uh, and in Superman Returns, the Brian Singer pseudo-sequel, pseudo-remake of this movie. And now back to the show, already in progress. It's, it's a nice character moment where he's like, uh, I talked to, 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 to continue what you're saying. He says, I talked to Ben Hubbard, he'll come, he'll be happy to, he basically says he'll be happy to come over and help because I'm, I'm going, I gotta yeah. go. And it's, it's this kind of wonderful thing that also serves to cement what we know must have happened in the intervening 14 years that they've yeah. raised this kid. He's had love and care heaped upon him, right? right? And he is a dutiful son, which we'll see in Metropolis in a bit. But, you know, he's like, I'm not leaving unless I know that you're going to have help with the farm. I mean, there are these little brilliantly acted, brilliantly shot scenes in Kansas that have to convey 14 years of time passage, right? It's some of the most effective filmmaking in the movie. Uh, I would agree. There's almost no action in it. It's just visuals and great acting. And I, I mean, I can't say enough about that. And from there, we get kind of a callback to Krypton. Because he says, I'm a head north. And this is, I think, its own little chapter, but it's almost like an interlude. But like, so if we have a, the visual chapter of Krypton, we have the visual chapter of Kansas, we have the callback during the interlude to Krypton, where he goes north with the green crystal to the North Pole, and he builds the Fortress of Solitude. Oh, not only the green crystal. Did you notice that when he opens his backpack, his, his blankets that were in the oh, spaceship are clearly visible? I would like to say that I did notice that, but I did not. Um, it's true. I, it's, I, no, I totally believe you. I'm, I'm sure I've noticed it in the past, but I didn't notice it upon these last two viewings. Um, so everybody, he goes to the North Pole, throws the crystal, the green crystal, and it foments the creation of this giant Kryptonian-like fortress. Um, and this is one of the things you said in one of our podcasts about the Batman movies, that this is the singularity out of which many superhero movies are born. This is the first template. Uh, you've made this case before, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this out for the audience that's listening. Um, you've said that this is the first superhero movie template. And... It is in these scenes here that I, I, I have had to kind of, I, I see the merit of that hypothesis because this is, I'm going to maybe sound a little uh, crazy here. I don't know. But I think Nolan watched this movie and saw the subtle ways uh, Mario Puzo's script and Richard Donner incorporated some big goofy concepts of the comic books into the movie. And they kind of, create them in a way that is palatable for the, for the cinema. Some things work that you don't expect. The Superman costume works brilliantly. You wouldn't expect it to work. Right. It's a goofy costume. Like many years later, uh, the Thor costume will work. Nobody expected that to work. Right. But if you embrace it, it can. But other things are a little more subtle. Uh, in Christopher Nolan's uh, third Batman movie, it's never mentioned, but we get a very uh, organic version of the Lazarus pit wherein people are reborn. 
the Batman is broken. He gets thrown into the pit. He uh, emerges from the pit a new man, right? Right. Bane is in the pit. He comes out a new being. The daughter of Ra's al Ghul comes out of the pit. But it's a prison. It's a kind of it's kind of a terrible place. But it's never called the Lazarus Pit. It's never given a mystical uh, twist like it is in the comic book. In uh, this movie, after the uh, fortress is built, Superman's place where he can go and meditate, right? Um, Brando, we get a lot of inter- interactions with the Brando algorithm, the Jor-El agor- algorithm. And he's like, he's uh, a son, this place, this fortress of solitude is where we will grapple with the questions that, have, that you have. And we'll try to find the answers together. Oh, he says, we'll try to find the answers together in this fortress of solitude. But it's a subtle kind of delivery, you know? Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but it's a great scene and it's a, it's a great use of the comic concepts, but without, somehow without losing their, their gravitas. So uh, there's something that actually struck me this time about Brando's, because Brando does most of the talking except for, who am I? Uh, but- uh, And who am I? Uh, but what did, what you just said, uh, we will find the answers together. Mm-hmm. For the, for the first time, I actually kind of got the impression that Jor-El as well, the Jor-El algorithm, as you say, yeah. he never really had a plan either. Oh, I don't think he's he kind of, yeah, he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants as well, because he never, he gives some parameters to Kal-El. Yeah. He doesn't tell him exactly what to do. Oh, no. Uh, and, and I really kind of get the sense that there, there's kind of this, you know, here we go. Let's find out how this, you know, how this is going to go. Well, those scenes are kind of key. And I, 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 like you said, I only noticed this this time. Um, I think Jor-El in this film, if we're kind of looking at subtext, uh, really thought he was going to convince the council that Krypton had to be evacuated. Um, and everything that happens afterwards is just, well, I got to get my kid off the planet. Right. You know? right. And, uh, and so he gets he gets he gets Cal to Earth, and then it's uh, it's also I th- so he gets Cal to Earth, and then he's gonna at, on his 18th birthday he's going to he has this programmed crystal, and it's gonna call the Cal L. Only Kryptonians probably can hear it, uh, maybe dogs too. I don't know. Um, uh, there's a whistle that he gets called to, uh, and he finds the crystal. But it causes the creation of the fortress, and it causes the creation and activation of what I think is an actual AI. Yeah. You know, the Jor-El, what I'm calling the Jor-El algorithm is a living, quote unquote, breathing thing. It's not Jor-El, but it is his mind, I think, in many ways. And so it's a, it's a thing that can, he, can, he can interact with. It's not like, a, it's not something that you have to ask specific questions to to get specific responses. It is actually a thing that can interact with him. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an effective AI. It's, it's basically what, uh, what we see in a lot of movies. It's Hal. It's a nicer version of Hal. It's uh, Jarvis from the Iron Man movies. I mean, but it's the right. first instantiation of this, of this thing that is an algorithm. Uh, they never say it in the movie. They never say that this is an algorithm. Um, they never say that it's a living AI and artificial intelligence. But I think that that is what they imply in the movie. Well, he clearly says, because um, when I was a child, I kind of wondered, now, did he just put his mind into the computer? Yeah. Um, but I don't think so. I think that you're on the right track because he says, 
uh, you do not remember me. Uh, by the time you hear this, uh, I will have been dead many thousands of your years, which yeah, is yeah. which is the return of that formal Kryptonian. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, phrasing, um, and it's great. And like you said, Brando does most of the talking, uh, and he's there for what twelve years? Is that? I mean, that's what I get out of it. He's he's there for like a number of years, at least a decade. Yeah, yeah. He's I believe he says twelve of your years will have passed, and they they kind of do this. I don't know, almost like the last scene of 2001 A Space Odyssey where like all these years are just kind of happen, you know, yeah, for yeah. us like that. Yeah. And, and so it's I was like, watching, it was kind of... It's not many, it's not, it's not very much time in screen time, but we get Brando kind of talking about uh, different things that happen on Earth, different things that have happened in the 28 known galaxies. Um, uh, we don't see Clark age during that time. That's going to be a surprise when we first meet Clark. So they don't want to see, yeah. they don't want us to see... Well, uh, I don't want to see the Christopher Reeve Clark, uh, but but so yeah, you're right. It's all Brando talking um, and uh, telling him who he is and telling him that he's basically a child of Earth now, but he wants him to remember his special Kryptonian heritage, uh, which is I think it's a really high concept. Brando doesn't want him to. Him, uh, sorry, Jorel doesn't want him to impose Krypton's culture on the world. He doesn't want Kal-El to impose his own will on Earth. He wants There's a Kal prime directive. I mean, basically, There's, that's right. You know, yeah. you can't interfere with human history. Um, uh, he, he gives him the, uh, well, that happens a little later, I think. And I don't know if it happens in the theatrical cut where he basically says, you can't tell them who you are. And it does not. Ha you're right. And actually, I do want to talk about that scene, because even though that scene, the way it was put back, the scene you're referring to yeah. is a little is a little sloppy. That's a great that's an important scene, I think. Well, so so for people who don't know this, there are there's the 1978 theatrical cut. And then there is the Richard Donner cut, which came out in 2001. Is that right? 2000 or 2001, yeah, yeah somewhere around there. And so, to, for some reason, and maybe you can get into this, Richard Donner ends up getting access to the Superman footage to release the cut of the film he would like to have released. And uh, he restored a lot of footage, and in, in a lot of the scenes in the director's cut, we get a lot more Jarrell and Kal-El time, but we get a lot more of Jarrell generally. And uh, his... Uh, is wisdom. We get a lot more of Jarrell imparting wisdom to Clark Kent slash Kal El. Um, and well, we get him talking to Christopher Reeve. First we get all. him talking to Christopher Reeve. Absolutely. Um, and this is kind of broken up over a couple of scenes. We get uh, the twelve years where he's at the Fortress of Solitude after Pa Kent died. Then we see him in Metropolis for a little while, and we get another scene of Kal El back at the Fortress of Solitude in the director's cut. Um, and I have to say, you should see the 78 cut as it was in the theaters in 78. But I was marveling as I watched the director's cut today at why they cut what they did. Because I thought that everything that got added back in actually made the film better. There are good scenes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I would have liked to have seen those scenes put back in intentionally at the time because yeah. i know that that uh stuart baird who who edited the film and mm -hmm. who edited a lot of donner's films did not do the editing 
for the for this cut. Yeah. But that scene um, where he talks to Jor-El and Jor-El, and I like that. He says, you know, you got to maintain your secret identity. Yeah. And, and Kal-El's like, why? Yeah. And it's like, okay, wow, you know, this wasn't the plan. You know, Clark didn't go to Metropolis, which is what we all think. Clark can't go to Metropolis and be like, well, eventually I'm going to start saving people. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very clear there was no plan and that he and Jor-El have to kind of work out where, the, yeah. where we're going to go from here. And I really, I really like that. And yeah. then he, he, he reaches out to embrace him. Yeah. But he can't because, of course, it's, it's an so, algorithm. So what Jason's talking about is in the film, uh, after Clark has been in Metropolis for a little while, he ends up saving a bunch of people. Lois, he saves. He stops a few crimes. He saves a cat. He saves the president of the United States. Um, and then he goes back to the Fortress of Solitude to talk to Jor-El. Now, this doesn't happen in the 78 cut, but it happens in the Donner cut. And he says, I, it felt, he, he's in conversation with this, with this AI. He says, you know, it felt good. And Jor-El's like, well, that makes sense. It, it's good that it felt good. You know, it, it, it's fine. Um, but you're revealed to the world. So be it. And, uh, and Jor-El says, but you must always maintain your secret identity, which comes to the point where you just said, Clark says, why? And Jarrell lays out some very compelling reasons. He's like, well, for one, if people knew who you were, where they could reach you, they would try to bug you all the time to solve their own problems, to solve problems they can solve. And he's like, and he says, this is a really cool line. I thought, yeah. watching it today, he says, it is the nature of humans to overexploit their resources. Yes. Uh, which is a neat line and a neat yeah. observation. Uh, and I have to think that's from the Puzo script. Um, or it could be from Donner and Mankiewicz and uh, the Newsoms. Is that right? The, the Newmans, although Newmans. I think a lot, a lot of their material probably got mixed. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, but if the other reason is that Jor-El says to Clark, the other reason is that if people knew who you were, the only way they can, most people will be able to hurt you is through the people you care about. And so right. you can't do that. You can't be at the beck and call of people 28 days of 28 hours of the day is what Jor-El says right. and Clark says well 24 and uh, Jor-El this is why I think it's an algorithm and not I'm not an algorithm but but an AI uh, because he corrects himself he's not this is not a rote uh, device it's not something that has like uh, canned responses to questions um, and so there's a neat scene where Clark can go to Jor-El, the Jor-El AI, and get some wisdom and feedback. And, and the Jor-El AI is sophisticated enough to, to have all of Jor-El's emotions. As he talks about the other thing, the other closing thing that he says to Clark in this scene is like, it's okay that you felt good about that. It's okay. Everybody has a little bit of vanity. You don't want to let vanity get the better of you because vanity is a, is a, is a danger. And he's like, were it not for vanity, I could hug you now, son. And that's when Clark, that's when, that's when Clark reaches out to hug the AI. Um, and I, I hate to be critical of Christopher Reeves. It's not the best acting that he does in the movie, but uh, it is, a, it is a good scene. And, but that comes to the clunkiness of maybe one of the reasons why they cut it because it just didn't yeah. look good. Uh, yeah. Christopher Reeves didn't quite hold up that well in that scene. Well, uh, that would have been one of his first scenes. 
Oh wow! Uh, all all Marlon Brando material was shot in sequence yep. right out of the gate, including all scenes from Superman two. Yep. So uh, because Brando, he worked on the film and then he left. He he never came back. Uh, but there's another moment which you which you cited that also sticks out for me is when he says, uh, you know, okay, you felt good and it's good that you felt good. And, and Kal-El says, you, there's no way you could imagine how it felt. And Kal-El is right because no other Kryptonian has ever had this experience of this power. And so already Kal-El is moving kind of away from the experience of his father, which is going to be a problem. At some point, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a brilliant. I mean, I, I think that those scenes are brilliant. I, I found myself baffled over and over again at the scenes that were cut, you know. Uh, yeah. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about Clark's first, uh, our first experience of Metropolis with Clark, um, and uh, so we have the visual chapter of Krypton. We have the visual chapter of Kansas, and now we're moving. We have the interlude of North Pole, Arctic Circle, which is kind of also a stand-in, a kind of callback rather to Krypton. Uh, and then we move in to Metropolis, which is New York, 1978. I mean, that's their Metropolis. Uh, right. That won't always be the case in other films or whatever, but Metropolis is, the Metropolis we see through Clark at first is is a gray city, quote, and by gray I mean like it's got good and it's got bad. But one of the things I really dig about this this Metropolis bit is that it's fast. Like it's fast in a way that Kansas wasn't. Everybody talks fast. Everybody moves fast. Um, people talk over each other. Um, whereas in Kansas we get this kind of John Ford blocking this John Ford kind of style dialogue where you say this, I say that. Um, it's almost like stage. It's almost like we've, you and I have talked about this personally a lot about how Ford and Kurosawa had these very, very meticulous blocking, very meticulous dialogue scenes uh, that almost seem clunky out of context, right? Um, but they're very formal, almost, almost, almost formal style, almost kabuki, right? Um, but when we get to Metropolis, it is everybody's fast talking people talk over each other you know people uh ignore clark people uh people are rude i mean new york i mean metropolis is kind of rude at times um it's a big departure from everything we've seen before and it's really lovely to watch uh and we 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 get introduced to the daily planet the daily planet of course for people who don't know is the newspaper of metropolis it is the paper of record um and uh uh, we get some of the great, great bits of dialogue. But there's this thing about Donner that I really like, and it's the respect that he has for the audience. Um, early on, Clark is getting introduced to everybody in the office. And uh, during the course of this, Lois helps him open a bottle, and it causes soda to get all over him. And uh, Perry White, the editor-in-chief at, at the office, orders Jimmy Olsen to go get him a towel and... I want coffee, no sugar, no cream. And uh, Jimmy Olsen uh, is flabbergasted. He's, he's always overwhelmed by Perry White. And he's backing out. He backs into somebody in the scene. 
and uh, he's like, hey, uh, and, he, and he's about to delegate some responsibility. <laughs> you got to get Clark a towel, but he doesn't want to get the coffee. And he's like, hey, get Perry wants a, Mr. White wants a coffee, no sugar, no cream, and uh, I'll have a tea with a lemon. And he walks <laughs> off. He walks off. And that's kind of a throwaway line, but I only noticed this today when Jimmy's leaving the office. There's a guy following him. This is like a couple seconds later in the scene, or maybe 30 seconds. Jimmy's like, say night, night, and to Clark and to Lois. And the guy who he sent to get Perry White coffee is trailing after him with the tea. You know? And I mean, that's a gag that it didn't need to be there. I only noticed it. I mean, how many years ago it was 1978? I only noticed it yesterday, you know? And I still haven't noticed it. That's <laughs> the first that I've heard of it. But it's a great gag. And there are other gags in the thing where people are so, this is a gag that uh, Donner goes back to again and again in his career. Um, Clark and Lois are talking. Clark's having an intense conversation with her. Not intense in that it's emotional, but they're just into the conversation and, Lois is like, oh, that's nice, Clark. That's neat. And she's going into the restroom. And Clark is like, uh, he's walking after her because he's not paying attention to what's going on. And she's like, uh, Clark, ladies. And he's like, oh, sorry. And he backs, he walks away and then he tries to go catch an elevator and more evidence of Clark being a bumbling guy who doesn't pay attention to anything is, is offered by the filmmakers. But that scene is called back... Uh, we, we see it in Lethal Weapon when uh, the chief of police or the captain yeah. is talking to the psychologist about Martin Riggs' character from Lethal Weapon and she almost follows him into the men's restroom and he's like, hey, uh, lady, this is the men's restroom. And uh, anyway, but no, Donner, right. Donner yeah. likes that restroom gag and it's a good gag, uh, but I love how fast and gritty and kind of 70s New York metropolis is I, I just i really love how how he captures that and that serves a double purpose on, on the one hand it, it it does exactly what we just said it uh we're in a new place now people act differently uh the music's different the, everything's loud there's the clacking of typewriters but you know what you just said is true of every character except clark yeah. clark's still smallville no, no and he's out of play oh, i'm fucking like you know, yeah, and everyone, as you say, everyone's ignoring him, and he's expecting this interaction, uh, like where he came from, and yeah. it's just not there. So, s some of his Clark Kent is acting, and, and here I'm talking about the character, not Christopher Reeve. Yeah. Some some of his Clark Kent is acting. Some of it is well, he was raised in Kansas. Yeah. He's not a big city guy. Yeah. Well, you yeah, know? like you said, he he often is like, oh, I'm Clark Kent. And he puts out his hand, and people ignore him. Uh, right. Uh, he. Uh, he tries to introduce himself and people ignore him and uh, people call him by the wrong name, I think. And maybe not in this film, but in the next film. Uh, but Lois is, Lois notices him right away. It's interesting. It's interesting. She's a big uh, city woman. She's a modern woman. She's an yes. aggressive reporter. She's a good reporter with a strange inability to spell, but, but that's a good gag too. Uh, rapist has only one P. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> And, uh, but she's a good writer. She's an aggressive reporter. Lois Lane is a very full, very real character. She, she notices Clark because 
after after getting wa- after getting soda on him and after getting him a towel and uh, he's like uh, as he's leaving the office and he's get, she's going to show him around the office and introduce him to some people. He says to Perry White, "Oh, Perry White, uh, Mr. White." And he always calls Clark always calls people Mr. or Mrs. or Miss or he's very polite. I like that about Superman and Clark Kent. Um, he's like, "Could you send half my paycheck to this address?" And Lois says at first. Oh, your bookie? And then Clark looks at her like she's crazy because he doesn't like almost like he doesn't know what a bookie is. And uh and she's like, Oh wait, your gray haired grandma your gray haired mom from uh back home and she's like, Well, she's silver haired actually. And she's like, What? And she's intrigued by him because he's a nice guy. I mean Clark is a legitimately nice guy. But she's not attracted to him, and that's why she says, Any more at home like you? Yeah. Hoping that maybe he's got a brother that she would be interested in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, I mean, she finds him interesting. I mean, she does find him interesting. And, and, I mean, even though she doesn't seem very attracted to Clark, she does like him a lot. She she finds him to be a nice guy and a worthy guy. Um, uh, And so, anyway, Metropolis is is his own thing. And so that's – in my notes, I have that as Upper Metropolis. And from there – we meet Lower Metropolis, which we get through Lex Luthor and his group of cronies. Uh, and we first get introduced to them in the form of Otis, which is played by Ned Beatty to perfection. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Ned Beatty is channeling like a, a, a combination of Laurel and Hardy, and I don't quite know which one it is, or yeah. if it's both of them. But uh, Ned Beatty is uh, Lex Luthor's henchman, and that's how we end up meeting... Uh, the lower metropolis, the bad metropolis, which is the subway, it's gritty. Um, and uh, I'll let you take away from here because I I, uh, I don't know exactly what I want to say about the Lex Luthor bit. So we've met everybody who's good, and then we come into this 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 other part of metropolis, which is a, a bit of an extensive scene because uh, the police in metropolis, there's two officers that spot him. They follow him down uh, into the into the subway station. Otis is not paying attention. Apparently, this happens all the time. You were followed again. Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, in spite of those cat-like reflexes. If you see this movie for nothing else, see it for Gene Hackman's mean, mean one-liners at his henchmen. <laughs> it, is, it is so funny. I mean, like, uh, Gene Hackman. Not on your life. Which I would gladly sacrifice, by the way. <laughs> Gene Hackman is the mean. Gene Hackman is uh, anticipating Skeletor from the uh, 1980s He-Man cartoon. He is so mean to everybody who, <laughs> who thinks to work for him. But go on, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what's interesting here is that suddenly, after really a very serious film. Yep. Donner suddenly is, and this begins at the Daily Planet, but the humor of the film and and characters that are kind of played for last, he allows those characters to breathe a little bit, which is is kind of a gutsy move because really we've had a very serious film up to this point. And the film film stays serious, but it's not afraid to to amuse the audience. And I think Otis is is one of the the primary uh, characters there. So he goes down and and he follows the track through the subway and there's one of the officers that uh, follows him 
and then the other officer goes to get backup. And uh, Luthor, of course, recognizes that this is taking place, and he uses one of his little gimmicks, one of his little booby traps to dispense with the police officer, and and he's kind of killed horribly. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, I they mean don't, we don't. They don't. We don't see they don't it. Show him. He's pushed out in front of a subway train. Um, but see, that's one of the things I I really I really love that scene. Oh, it's a great scene. To, because after that, okay, so we begin with Otis. We begin with the the score. I don't know if that's a tuba or a bassoon. Yeah, the Otis theme. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah, yes. and, and and it's kind of it's it's, it's, a it's dumbness incarnate. It's dumbness yeah. in music form. It's brilliant. Yeah, and and, and he's uh, he tries to steal a paper and a candy bar, and but then ha- ends up having to pay for it. And he's clearly a character that is uh, played for laughs. Yeah. And then Luthor absolutely kills this this police officer horribly. Yeah. And the next time we see him, he's kind of laying, he's kind of sitting back, very pleased with himself. Miss Tessmacher is not. She's yeah. sick. And, twisted. And, and, she says twisted. She calls her, that's just twisted. Well, and, 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 and he just kind of nods like, absolutely. Like, absolutely. he's very pleased with himself. And I like that, that blend of cruelty. Yeah. And yet we also just had a little, a little bit of humor as well. Yeah. And then Otis will come in and we'll have kind of another comedy scene. Yeah. And I, I think that those, these scenes balance tone very well. I, I mean, this is an area where we might have a little bit of disagreement. I think for the most part, I think this, this stuff works well. Um, there'll be later scenes that I think almost, uh, if I said that Hackman anticipates Skeletor, I say that lovingly, everybody. Um, <laughs> there are other scenes that I think anticipate Cannonball Run. <laughs> that, I don't, that I don't think work as well. And I say that as somebody who loves Cannonball Run. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but this scene in the lair, it kind of blends the humor uh, because Otis is an imbecile. He's, Lex Luthor's chief henchman is an imbecile. And uh, Miss Tessmacher is a feisty, fun woman, I think, to, to, to be in a relationship with, which is why I think Lex Luthor has her around. Um, uh, because after he kills this person horribly, he and Tessmacher uh, have a kind of a funny argument, you know, yeah. um, <clears throat> while Otis is finishing his, <clears throat> his journey to the lair, which is 50, 50 feet below Park Avenue, right? She accuses Lex of being twisted. And he's like, and they have this argument about like, no, you don't call me brilliant, which would be obvious, I grant you. Um, uh, she has some misgivings about Lex, his, his, his lady, Tessmacher. Um, this is a trio of characters, Luther, Otis, Tessmacher. Uh, you know what I just realized? They're kind of a analog or a, a kind of a doubling, a doppelganger of the foes that Superman will fight in Superman 2. There's a brilliant person, there's uh, a woman, and then there's an imbecile. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. But anyway, we'll get into that in the next movie. But it's a weird trio because Luther, I, I was writing, I was thinking about this today as I was writing my notes. 
Luther, Gene Hackman plays Luther as, as, I, as, a, as almost a Bill Murray kind of bad guy. Bill Murray often plays guys who are the smartest guys in the room, who nobody appreciates. Um, Bill Murray's characters often have contempt for everyone in the room as well, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's this, and there's also this aggrievedness that Luther has that Hackman really does well. I mean, he's a brilliant guy. He's very smart. And he, for some reason, associates with a street smart woman and a moron, 50 feet under Metropolis. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a posh place. I don't know how he did it. It, 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 it kind of goes to his brilliance. But like, I was just marveling at this trio. Like, like Luther is mean to both of them. Lex Luther is mean to both of them. When, when he's watching Otis uh, walk down the, the way, uh, the, the hallway, the corridor. It's amazing that brain can generate enough power to keep those legs moving. I mean, and he says that kind of thing to Otis's face all the time. Uh, another great example is like, you know why the number 200 is so descriptive of both of us? It's your weight and my IQ. Um, you know, uh, and Otis doesn't get any of this. Ned Beatty does this so brilliantly. I mean, he doesn't really notice. He seems to not notice how mean Luther is to him. You know, unless Luther's hitting him, everything's fine for Otis, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, another great scene where uh, Luther's mean to Otis uh, after they've done a – it seems like they've done a successful bit of caper and, and – Otis comes back, he's like, Luther, Luther, I've done it. I did it. And uh, Lex is like, it's not that I don't trust you, Otis, but I don't trust you. So, <laughs> so tell me what you did. And we'll, we'll get to that scene a bit more in a minute. But, but it's a weird trio, isn't it? Yeah. Like, um, why is he with these people? Uh, you know, I think the film kind of implies that uh, – Luthor is indeed very, very brilliant, but he, he, well, he actually, he asked him, he asked that question of us, you know, he's like, why does the greatest criminal mind of our time surround himself with total nincompoops? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when Otis comes in, I'm here, Mr. Luthor. <laughs> yes, I was just talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I, I don't understand why he, he does that. Um, I think maybe he is, he is by his nature kind of a mean person and he has found these people with low self-esteem or with suitably yeah. low IQs that they don't, that they just tolerate what he does. Um, so, so we meet Luther uh, late in the film. I mean, this is kind of a slow movie. My son Finn found it slow. We don't see Superman in the garb for an hour and 12 minutes. Yeah, you know? true. Um, and uh, that's a great montage, by the way. But, but, but before we meet Superman, we meet Luther and his crew. Um, and Luther is going to create the, he's going to pull off the greatest criminal, what is it, heist? Uh, the greatest criminal caper? I don't remember what he says, of our time. And what is the caper that he wants to do, Jason? Lay it out for us. Uh, well, of course, it's involving land. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, his plan is to commandeer a 
atomic weapon, a nuclear weapon, uh, that will be launched by the military after being uh, reprogrammed by Luther and his, uh, and his crew, uh, which will uh, allow the, basically the west coast of California to fall into the sea. Uh, and then Luther will, he's already bought up all of the useless desert in California, which now will be beachfront property. So he's interested in land, land, land. That's right, that's right. Um, what did my father tell me, Miss Tessmacher? Get out. That, <laughs> see, that's, what I, that's one of the things I love about Miss Tessmacher. Like, uh, she gives back to Lex as good as he gives. Like, he's very mean to her, but she's not, she doesn't seem scared of him. She's scared right. of what he'll do to other people, I think. We see that later on. But she's not scared of what he'll do to her. I just think it's an interesting. <clears throat> I think it's an interesting dynamic, and uh, Donner doesn't really explore it more any more any any more than showing it to us, which I think is neat. But the thing I don't like, and the only thing for me that doesn't work, is when they they reprogram the missiles. Uh, I mean, I think in another film I would have liked it more, but the gags just seem too over the top. In the movie, they uh, they stop a, a army caravan that's that has these nuclear weapons with uh, two different gags. Uh, one is a car wreck, and then they throw out uh, uh, Miss Tessmacher in skimpy clothing as if she's been injured in the car wreck and causes the convoy carrying the nuclear weapon to stop. And then for some reason... Lex Luthor gives a very difficult task to an imbecile yeah. instead of giving him the simpler task of driving the ambulance to pick up Miss Tessmacher. Um, okay. It makes for a funny gag later on when, when Otis gets everything wrong. Um, <laughs> which, which, who didn't see that coming? From the moment... Otis emerges from the green foliage behind a single branch of conifer tree wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Like, <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know why Lex did this. Uh, and it seems kind of like a, uh, a survivor of the campy script. Uh, it seems like, a, it seems like a bit that's a survivor from that campy Newman script. That's, uh, that, that's a possibility. Yeah. Um, and you know, on its own, it's a funny bit. Uh, yeah. the, so in the scene, uh, the actress, uh, Valerie per per Perrin. Uh, Say it with confidence. Remember. Sorry, Perrin. Uh, Perrine. Uh, <laughs> she stumbles out with a low-cut dress and a mini, a low-cut miniskirt kind of dress. A low-cut mini dress, I guess you'd say. Lots of cleavage showing. And... Uh, one of the, this is a product of 1978, guys, uh, where uh, groping was still a gag, you know, that you could, that you could put in a movie. Um, watching it now, I had a, a few queasy moments, you know, um, yeah. as these military guys are around this woman who's, you know, clearly in distress. And one of the soldiers is like, well, what should I do? And then a famous actor from the time, uh, Larry Hagman, is that right? Larry Hagman, yeah. Uh, is like... Uh, well, I suggest you do vigorous chest massage and mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth resuscitation. And the soldier's like, all right, or something like that. And he gets ready to go and basically sexually assault this woman. And then Larry Hagman grabs him and is like, son, 
I wouldn't have a soldier do anything I wouldn't do. And he sends the guy off and he's like, he's going to take over with the vigorous chest massage and the uh, mouth compressions. And he says, all right, everybody fall in. And the circle of soldiers moves in. And then he says, about face. And then yeah. he, I mean, it's, I mean, this is a funny gag in 78. It's a bit harder to watch in 19, or in 2020, you know? That's true, yeah. But, but, uh, but it is, uh, folks, when you watch that scene, just think you're, you're doing a history project there. Um, but, uh, and then the second gag is, uh, they just block the highway up with another semi. But you notice that uh, Otis has a black eye. Yes. <laughs> you want to see a long arm, Otis? So Otis gets the code wrong after he goes and tries to do the, he, he, what they're going to do is they're going to stop the semis and they're going to put new codes into the, uh, to the nuclear weapons. And uh, Otis, of course, puts in the wrong code because what else could he do? You know, say, like, oh, I guess, oh, Mr. Luthor, uh, I guess my arm wasn't long enough for the whole code. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, you want, uh, it wasn't long enough, Otis? Wasn't long enough, Otis? Your arm, <laughs> you see a long arm, Otis? Uh, no, Mr. Luthor, no. And then, of course, uh, they're driving down the road uh, as Lex Luthor is losing his mind about Otis's incompetence. He jumps out of the seat of the driver's seat <laughs> and attacks Otis and Valerie Perrin has to jump into the driver's seat. And that is a great gag in Cannonball Run. I don't, I don't know if it's a great gag in, in this Superman movie. Well, you know, I will, I will, I will definitely grant that. Yeah. Uh, what you're saying specifically about these scenes. Uh, I also uh, would understand that some people might even see Ned Beatty's Otis as being somewhat out of place, but I just love all those scenes. And I, I love and I love those characters, and I I am amused to no end. By I, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that that's the wrong attitude. I just I think that it would have been a. Uh, I mean, this is a movie of 1978, and I think that this definitely works for the time. Uh, you see a lot of this. We've talked about this a lot in John Ford movies, where we'll get like some comedy bit that just in to modernize just doesn't work. And I think I think that. Some of that is bleeding through here, but I mean, for 1978, this is okay. This is amazing. well. Now, see, I, I I agree with you. I agree with you definitely about John Ford. We've discussed about that before. How John Ford will have these very these films with, with a great deal of weight to them, and then suddenly there'll be this this comic scene that is well, just ridiculous, and it and it throws you out of the movie. Yeah. Now, what I would suggest to you, I don't think this does. I I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, so, so they successfully get the, uh, the codes put in, um, and, but here's why I do have, as a viewer, I have issues with it because this is great comedy that they do in these scenes. I, when Gene Hackman jumps in the back and beats the shit, we don't see him beat the shit out of Otis, um, we only get the aftermath when Otis has a black eye and is trying not to draw attention to it later on. Um, I mean, that is great comedy, but what hurts the film for me is everything that comes after, because um, after this, Gene Hackman springs his trap. He's got, he figures out everything that he needs to know about Superman. He, he has a hypothesis about how meteorites from Krypton probably will hurt Superman. He figures out all this stuff. And he springs his trap right after he gets the codes into the nuclear weapons. And for me, there's some humor in these scenes, 
but uh, I think it's really high drama. And I don't know how well, for me, it doesn't play quite as well as it did when I was a kid in 78. Um, so after, for the viewers who haven't seen this movie, by the way, stop the podcast right now. Go watch either the 78 version or the Donner cut and then restart the podcast. Um, I really can't say that enough. I mean, I think you agree with me. This is a movie you have to see. Yeah. Um, so after he gets the codes into the nuclear weapons and he has control of two nuclear warheads, um, he makes, Lex Luthor makes his introduction to Superman via dog whistle, a very loud dog whistle that uh, only Superman can hear. And he basically invites Superman to come and uh, meet him because he's going to poison half the city with uh, poison gas. And uh, Superman is, at the time he gets this whistle, he's, he's Clark Kent. Uh, and he's hearing this loud signal that only Superman can hear. Uh, and under that, under that loud signal, Lex Luthor's laying it all out for him. Hey, Superman, how else was I going to meet you but through this nefarious plot that I've just cooked up? And uh, Superman has to leave the Daily Planet and find the source of the signal. Uh, and in the 78 version, this is a good scene. In the 2001 Donner cut, it's a much better scene. Um, because in the 78 version, he, find, he flies around the city and finds the, the source of the signal. He does a little Superman spinny drill and he goes into the, uh, the nether realm of Metropolis and just basically walks into Luther's lair. In the Donner cut, Donner tests, uh, sorry, in the Donner cut, Luther tests Superman with several defenses that are really all good effects. I don't know why any of this was cut. Uh, you, you, you recommended that I definitely see that scene. Explain, explain why. Well, it, well, actually, I remember the scene from when I was a kid because mm -hmm. uh, when ABC would show the movie, they would put back a lot of these scenes. Yeah. And uh, so the first time I ever saw the theatrical cut, I was like, hey, where's the tunnel? So, yeah, what happens is Superman, he, he comes down, and there's this long tunnel that leads to Luthor's lair, and he's assailed first by machine gun fire, yep. and then by uh, flamethrowers, and then by uh, ice, and he's, yes. he's frozen. He's frozen solid, and the you know the effects of the the bullets bouncing off of him mm -hmm. still looks really good. I thought so too. Yeah, I don't know why. Like I was trying to be critical of some of the effect scenes because I thought, well, maybe this is why they were cut, but. The bullets look good. The uh, the flamethrower that is a great effect. I mean, I think they did like some reverse projection. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, it looks great. Uh, yeah. And uh, and the ice bit, it also looks very good. Um, yeah. And and of course, Superman walks through every one of these things because Jor El was right about his vulnerabilities. Uh, it's interesting too, though, because we also see that Luther is a little doubtful about how tough Superman is because he has a lot of confidence that these things are going to affect Superman the whole time, by the way, uh, Miss Tessmacher cannot help, but be, uh, cannot help, but to rub all of Superman's amazing physical characteristics in Luther's face. Uh, from the moment we meet Superman in the newspapers, everybody's reading about him and Lex Luthor says, it's too good to be true. And Miss Tessmacher says, it is too good to be true. 
225 pounds, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. He's, he's to die for. I mean, basically, he's to die for. Um, uh, quick aside, also in that scene, uh, Luther's like, he says to Miss Tessemacher, you know, a person could read War and Peace and think they've just re- read a great war story, uh, adventure story. But another person can read the ingredients on a candy bar wrapper. And chewing see, gum. Chewing gum. And, yeah. and, see, and, and find the secrets of the universe. And happening in this scene, Otis starts to look at a chewing gum wrapper trying to find the secrets of the universe. I only just noticed this. And again, <laughs> that goes back to Donner's respect for the intelligence of the audience. Maybe 10 or 20% of the people caught at that time. But the great thing about a Donner movie, almost any Donner movie, is that it it does reward the viewer who watches it several uh, watches a Donner film several times. Well, because he, he's so friendly to actors, like he encourages them to continue performing at all times and to well, do little th- to feel free to do little things that uh, I Donner knows how to make a scene work. He knows how to make it exciting, and he yeah. knows how to make it funny. Yeah, and that's not everyone can do that, but he he is definitely a master. He's generally picked really great actors, and one of the things I love about uh, all of the actors in this film, and I I mean everyone from you know extras to marquee roles, is that they are all doing good work in this film. Like nobody's just kind of sitting a scene out. Um, another scene from that moment where. Uh, Otis is uh, looking at the can- uh, chewing gum wrapper to try and, <laughs> and find the secrets of the universe that Luther just said it in, uh, said we're in there. Uh, Luther reveals this, his hypothesis about kryptonite. And, uh, and he shows a picture from, I think, a National Geographic of this guy with a meteorite in Addis Ababa. And, uh, and Miss Tessmacher's like, uh, Addis Ababa? Uh, this guy found a kryptonite in Addis Ababa. And... Uh, and they know that there's kryptonite in Addis Ababa. And she turns around and she's like, I wonder what they're wearing in Addis Ababa. And uh, Otis looks at the uh, picture and he's like, it looks like a burnoose. And uh, <laughs> and uh, she's saying something and he's like, are we going to Addis Ababa? And the scene cuts back to Luthor and they're still talking and he's putting his head in his hands like, <laughs> why do I hang out with these people? <laughs> and it's just a brilliant scene. And, and for as, as a, much of a nuisance as Hackman appears to have been on the film, um, he works brilliantly with Beatty and Perrin. Um, they all are getting after it. They have great chemistry. And uh, I mean, they unambiguously do good work in every scene they're in, you know, which is why, I mean, I like those comedy bits that we talked about earlier, but for this transition to the Luther plot where he brings Superman into the plot, that is like, I think, some of the most sinister we will see Luther be. Um, so Luther brings Superman in with this plot. Superman comes in to the lair, uh, which is a great effect, another great practical effect when uh, all the traps have not worked and... Uh, Superman's at the door and the Luther, uh, sorry, Otis is like, I think he's here. And the door starts to swell outward. 
Yeah. You know, and Otis's eyes get really big and he runs to Luther and the door comes flying open in this, this shower of broken concrete and bent door and Clark Kent stumbles in, you know, as Superman as it is possible to be. And Luther, again, with some of that great dialogue and comedy, was like, it's open, come on in, yeah. you know? Uh, but, uh, and then what's, what's Superman say when he comes in? I can't remember. It's like, all right, Luther. All right, Luther. Where's the gas pellet? Yeah. I was like, uh, it's, uh, it's in, uh, in the back of my mind. It's something I've been toying with. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, but it was just a ruse. There was no gas pellet. He needed, he needed Clark there. And then Luther lays out his entire plot, the plot you laid out for us. Well, but, but there's, but, but there's some subtle moments because, uh, as you say, he's like somewhere in the back of my mind, actually, something I was toying with. And then Superman is super serious. You know, is that what a disease maniac like you, you know, that uh, uh, dreams of dreams yeah. killing people? Uh, and, uh, and then suddenly, Luthor, no, by causing the death of innocent people, he's suddenly he's very grave, and the, and the humor is gone. And there's and a so hard cut. To the missile, yeah, missiles, yeah. the missiles launching, um, yeah. and so, and then it comes back to the layer, Luther's layer, and uh, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I think that hard cut is 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 huge is a huge part of that scene. I, I I agree because there's kind of this sense we the viewer suspect that Luther's in charge. Yeah, Superman is oblivious to the fact that he is in any danger at all. Uh, but we know that Luthor is a really dangerous guy. Yeah. He's made us laugh a lot, but he, you remember uh, Perry White mentions that the people in Addis Ababa were killed. Yeah, yeah. he's like, look you know, at the press release from Addis Ababa. Yeah. Why does so, this happen? Yeah. Right, right. So um, then we come back to the scene where he explains you know, in kind of James Bond villain style. He yeah. just lays out his plan and he's very proud of it. But that is just such a great moment where you, you know, the camera's uh, uh, over the, his map on the floor. Yeah, yeah, the perspective is from the ceiling and the chandelier is kind of blocking uh, Superman. But we see uh, Luthor come out and then we see Superman come into the frame. And that kind of bird's eye view of Lex Luthor explaining his plan to Superman yeah. It's kind of this great visual comic movie moment. Oh, it is. Um, it's Now that I know that Mankiewicz was part of this, and I know that Mankiewicz's history with the Bond films, I mean, this is a very Bond moment, by the way, yeah. a Bond villain moment. Um, I didn't think about that until just now, but um, simultaneously, uh, Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are out west investigating this guy who's buying up all this worthless land out west for outrageous prices. Um, and Clark kind of knows that's going on. Clark just has just found out that Lois is out west uh, before going to Lex's lair. But Lex is giving him this lecture on how to make money in real estate. Is it buy cheap and sell high? And uh, But how do you make the land worth more than when you bought it? And his plan is to drop a nuclear weapon on the fault line of San Andreas and drop California into the sea, which you've said, and create a bunch of uh, oceanfront property. And uh, what, what, one of the things I also find interesting about that is uh, Clark kind of finds the plan, you know, well, it's a 
it's an impressive plan, Luther, but it's madness. It'll never work. You know, I mean, like you said, Clark doesn't realize he's in danger, but he has made a catastrophic blunder very early in the film. And that blunder is the interview with Lois. Um, yes. In the interview with Lois, he basically tells everybody on the planet his weaknesses and his strengths. And uh, he tells them where, where he's from. And little did he know there was a guy who had bad intentions listening. And that, that, bad, that, that was Luther. Um, Which, and, and you know, that, <coughs> the, the interview, that is the moment that, uh, that his father kind of warned him about. Yes, because, it is. Because the decision to, to give that interview is a, a choice of vanity. And you kind of get the sense that, you know, Clark has been kind of lonely his entire life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was an outcast, yet knew, he knew something about himself yeah. that that other people couldn't see. And his fault member, Jonathan Kennedy, uh, even says, you know, you can do all these things and you feel like you could just go bust if you couldn't tell people about him. Yeah. Finally has the chance to do it. And he discovers the hard way that he should not have done it. Well, I think in part, and this is a great, when you, when you review that scene, uh, when you're watching it, if you're watching it for the first time, he's talking, I think he lets his guard down because he's talking to Lois. I mean, he's yeah. talking to her, not the audience, you know? He's not thinking about everything that he's told his, his father has warned him about. He's thinking about, I like this girl, a woman, yeah. sorry. And, uh, and she likes him too, and, and, they're, and they're in this weird space because she's a reporter who has to report what he's telling her, but she's also enjoying this, this, uh, this interaction. So it's almost a date, but it is this other thing too that they both have kind of blundered into. Um, neither of them realize it, but Luther is on it because you're right. In that scene where he's like, no, I, I get gratification from causing the deaths of millions yeah. of people. That's the that's the place where the 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 kind of real menace of Luther is revealed, um, but uh, and so he shows Clark uh, in this in this scene where he's revealing his plan. He shows Clark the new West Coast, my West Coast. Um, you've got uh, Lutherville. Uh, I can't remember all the names, but Casa del Lex. Casa del Lex. Uh, Otisburg, uh, <laughs> uh, and then and then it gets to Otisburg, Otisburg, Whoa. Otisburg. Mrs. Tessmacher's uh, got a place. <laughs> Otisburg. Well, I'll, I'll just wipe it off. I'll just wipe it off. <laughs> and uh, and Clark's like, well, I don't think you're planning a lot of work. And and this is another great moment in the movie, and it is really high drama. When uh, it will never work, and it's like, well, I'll admit it was pretty complicated, and it took me a while to figure it out, but. If you plant, if you if you drop a thermonuclear bomb right here, and he Crash. smashes his yeah. his uh, little cane down on the some part of the San Andreas fault, and the whole glass map cracks, and this is really dramatic, and it's even dramatic despite the fact that Ned Beatty goes whoa, you know, <laughs> at the at the cracking of the glass, and then uh, Luthor and Clark go back to his desk, and Clark says, "Well, it'll never work." Um, you. And but then learns that the missiles are in the air. Uh, Miss Tessbacher goes, the missiles are in the air, Lex. And uh, little does she know, because Luther is playing games with her too, because after she tells him that the missiles are in the air, uh, he sends her out of the room. Uh, he does not trust her. 
because she know because he knows that she has a crush on Superman. But and on top of that, but but on top of that, the other missile's headed to Hackensack, New Jersey, where her mother lives. And I don't, as I watched it this time, I don't think that was an accident. I think Luther likes Mrs. Tessmacher, but I don't think he likes her mother. And I think that, <laughs> I honestly think that he elected to kill millions of people because of that. I think he sent that. I think he sent that missile to kill Miss Tessmacher's mom. But he sends her out of the room so she doesn't hear that. Well, um, one of the things that that uh, you know, because you know, we're talking about the little trio there. Yeah. You notice that before he springs his trap on Superman, Otis, will you wait in the viewing room, please? He, he makes sure to send to send Otis out of the oh, room because he well, knows Otis will screw it up. Otis will give it away. Lex also might realize with Miss Tesmacher is that she, he might realize that she's having second thoughts about his plans. Luther through the article that that Clark has, uh, the interview that Clark gave Lois, he's learned one of the key weaknesses of Superman is that while he has x-ray vision and he can see through a lot of shit, he cannot see through lead. Right. And so he's like, well, the missiles are in the air, basically, and uh, nothing can stop them. I've got one going to the East Coast and one going to the West Coast. Not even you, with your great speed, can get both missiles in time. Um, only I can stop them with my detonator. and. Of course, Clark wants to know where the detonator is. And he thinks it's in the lead box in the room. And of course it's not. Don't touch that. Yeah. Yep. Um, and Clark is a little bit of a bully in this scene too. He throws Lex across the air and, and uh, he's like, I'm gonna mold this lead box into your jail cell bar and the bars of your jail cell. Don't open that. Yeah. I mean, Lex is telling him the truth a little bit. Yeah. And Clark opens it, and it's a big hunk of kryptonite. I told you. Yeah. And, and then uh, Gene, Hack Gene Hackman has that broad grin of triumph. Oh, Because yeah. he, he knows it's over. It's over. He knows that all he had to do was open that, and we're done. I mean, yeah. actually, he didn't know. He had a hypothesis that he was very confident in. And I think that's another reason why he's grinning so much is because, well, I was right. You know, yeah, <laughs> and uh, because because Superman is immediately crippled by yeah. by even proximity. It's not even touching him yet, and he's already having trouble standing. You know, um, and uh, Lex, it's on a chain. It's on like a lanyard that Lex puts a, a, over his neck, like a like a, a, a necklace, an amulet of death. Uh, and uh, he's like, "Well, you know, you're great in your time, Superman." But this is another great line of Luther's. But when, you know, it just stands to reason that when it came time to cash in your your chips, I'd be your banker. This old diseased man. Oh, that's right. This old diseased yeah. mind would be your banker. Because uh, <laughs> it is funny, guys, uh, that Superman never says anything to Lex without also lacing an insult. He's <laughs> 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 like, only a diseased mind. I can't even think of all the insults that, that, that Superman heaps on Lex. And Lex doesn't necessarily deny them right <clears throat> but you know he's won yeah and uh the only thing that saves <clears throat> california and hackensack as it will turn out is clark saying you don't even care where the other missile's going and uh and he's got to tell him and and because luther has the bondian <laughs> problem right. of saying everything he's like oh no <laughs> i know exactly where that missile's going uh <laughs> It's going to Hackensack, New Jersey. And then he, he says, uh, 
no hard feelings. And he, he basically tosses him in their underground pool, which I can't think is a sanitary pool, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and to die, to drown. And, uh, and then uh, he's walking to Triumph to go watch the missiles do what they're going to do. And Miss Tessmacher comes up. And in another scene that kind of demonstrates how cold Lex is, for whatever, I think he has some kind of genuine, I don't want to say affection for Tessmacher and Otis because he keeps them around. And he doesn't need them. Right. You know, but he, for some reason, emotionally he does. Um, Tessmacher comes up and she's like, but Lex, my mom lives in Hackensack and he does this thing where he looks at his watch and then looks at her and shakes his head and then walks off. Not an apology, not a, I'm sorry I didn't realize that was going to happen. Just, nope. Not anymore. Not anymore. And he doesn't care and he walks off. And that puts uh, Tessmacher in a, in a, in a, a, pushes her over the edge. She's already had some doubts about him. Why do so many, she says this to him in the, earlier in the film, why do so many people have to die to, for your, for your plans, you know? Crime of the century, yeah. Yeah, for the crime of the century. And, and he basically is like, well, why does the sun have to rise? I mean, that's basically what he says, you know? It doesn't matter. I mean, this is just the way the world is. I want to do shit, you know? Why does the phone always ring when you're in the back? She's thinking about saving Superman so he can save her mom. And so also in that article, she learns that he won't tell a lie another place and she's like so if i help you you gotta save my mom first and he's like but lois and jimmy who the fuck why did he say that she doesn't know who the fuck they are (laughs) and so she uh, she very wisely says no you gotta save my mom first her selfishness probably saved millions of lives yeah you know because by making him promise to save her mom uh he he admit he agrees to it by the way this is some great acting by christopher reeve when he's like trying to when he's pleading with Tessmacher to help him save people, you know, and when he finally acquiesces to her, uh, you, no, no, you got to save my mother first. You got to promise me to save my mother first. And I know if you do, you, you will, because you don't tell a lie. And he's like, you can tell it's a dilemma for him. And it's like, okay, I will. Well, well, but he's also like, uh, when he finally agrees to it, he looks desperate. I promise. I promise. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I, and I really like the way that Reeve, I like, when he shows up, as you pointed out, he's a bully. He's he's cocky. He's oh, yeah. very cocky, and, and then suddenly he's oh, you know, he, he's horrified at this. The, you know, the probably the first time in his life that he's felt weakness, and now he's drowning. His friends are going to die. He's totally helpless, and he's he's like a child, like agreeing to something, you know, so he can get some help. And he he goes through all of that, and he plays it all very well. Oh, I think so. I think so too. And we know up to this point, nothing's hurt him because he says right. that in the interview. And she's like, Just, can, "Are you? Can anything hurt you?" Well, so far, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so, th- so in this movie, we see him in pain for the first time. Right. Uh, uh, but Miss Tessmacher gets the answer she wants, so she jumps in and saves him, and. Uh, also takes advantage of a person without their consent. She, she steals a kiss from <laughs> Superman. Um, yeah. But we also see her low self-esteem in that scene because she tolerant. She is a bright woman, you know? Yeah. And for some reason, she gravitates towards shitheads, you know? Because she says to him, well, why can't I, why can't I fall in with guys like, you know, good guys here, you know, basically. Yeah. Well, and then he says, stand back now, and I wouldn't stay here either. 
but uh, she That's didn't right. heed that. She didn't heed that advice. Well, she um, comes back later. She's not there immediately. Uh, well, you're right. She's in the next film. Yeah. And she's still with Luthor, so she yeah. never learned her lesson. But, but, and I'll just go ahead and bring this up now. Yeah. There is a deleted scene that was not in the director's cut. Yeah. That you might remember okay. when I bring it up to you. That uh, it, one of the last scenes of the movie, um, uh, after Superman saves the day, spoiler. What, 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 what? <laughs> Superman uh, saves the day? <laughs> Holy Luthor, shit. We come back to the lair, and Luthor is playing on the piano, and he's playing, she must have been a beautiful baby. And um, uh, Miss Tessmacher is hanging over a pit with tigers in the bottom, and uh, he's going to feed her to them. Gotcha. And then Superman flies up and catches her right, right before she oh. falls down into the pit. And that's when he arrests Luthor. You remember that? I don't remember that. I like the I like the Donner cut more because what it what it implies to me is that she left, because yeah, because when so Superman she takes the kryptonite necklace off of Superman and she gets rid of it and Superman goes and stops the missile headed for Hackensack, New Jersey, um, saving or imprisoning millions of people. However you want to, however you want to think of Hackensack, um, and. Uh, <laughs> And Luther realizes, by the way, the missile was diverted that Superman's out and that Tessmacher did it. And he had some doubts about Tessmacher by the way he was managing her. We could tell Luther had some doubts about her. But he's like, Miss Tessmacher, you know, and he screams it like he always does. But I like the idea that she left to get safe, you know. And then, and then Superman tries to get to the West Coast to stop the other missile. And this is kind of a neat touch. Because he doesn't do it. The missile hits the fault, the, the, the precise point of the fault line, and it causes, it begins the, the cycle of devastating earthquakes that Luther was trying to create. And then Superman stops a lot of them. Uh, in a neat scene that I still kind of marvel at for its effectiveness, because it uses, so Superman stops this earthquake by flying under the earth and realigning the tectonic plates um and he's crashing through this molten area and despite the fact that it's all practical effects and red lights and obvious jason obvious aluminum foil or or flame retardant material that's very silver glowing it's kind of also a this scene i think functions also as a callback to the destruction of krypton where everything's red and silver and <coughs> burning Right, and Superman stops the earthquake by pushing back up the San Andreas Fault. It's a, <coughs> it's a pretty effective set of practical effects. I thought even today, I think it's a it's a great scene. Um, very iconography, uh, I, uh, iconic, iconic. Sorry, sorry. Very iconic um, when he's got like the 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 giant rock on the back of his shoulders. I mean, it's like something you would see on a cover of a Superman comic book. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but, but even while he's saving everybody, even while he's stopping a train from derailing and saving a school bus uh, from going over the San Francisco bridge, his saving isn't perfect, is it, Jason? What happens, Jason, that causes oh, our hero's dilemma? He seems to save everyone 
except for one person that he actually wanted to save. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, the, the a lot of the scenes, you know, on the Golden Gate Bridge, yeah. uh, the, the, uh, um, the saving of the town, I mean, it's very obvious that those are just little pellets in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, model. But, but actually, uh, the famous train scene where he he bends the rail and yeah, lets he, the train, he, that looks great. Like It does, um, it does. The, those are all really good Superman scenes. Absolutely. But, uh, he is not in time. Uh, he is in time to save Jimmy Olsen, but he's not in time to save Lois. And she dies very quickly, by the way. Very quickly. And as a kid, her death horrified me. Yeah. It's, um, it's very claustrophobic. It's very claustrophobic. Up, yeah. The dirt's coming in. And, yeah. Yeah. Her, her car falls into a, a big crack in the Earth's crust. And it's being crushed, and she's got dirt falling into into her into her face, burying her. And as, I, even watching it today, I found the scene to be uh, really harrowing and terrifying. Like, oh my god, she's going to suffocate because she's got dirt going into her mouth. Um, uh, Margot Kidder acts the scene superbly as a very panicked person about to die, um, and uh, who does die. I mean, Lois Lane dies in this movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a horrifying scene that Clark happens upon because uh, he, he, must, he must hear the silence of her heartbeat. I mean, I think she, he doesn't hear her heartbeat anymore because he's not anywhere near her. Well, well, um, you know, it, it actually, that whole scene from the minute he rips the, the, the door open, yeah. uh, that's a great scene. It's, it's worth it walking is. through because... He pulls her out. Pulls the car uh, out. He pulls the car out. He rips the door off and then kind of realizes that she's dead. He picks her up. And then as he's kind of laying her down, I don't think that we see it, but he does, where her head falls in a certain way that yeah. clearly indicates that it's that she's lifeless. Yeah. And he goes, oh, like he, he, he kind oh, of. yeah, yeah. He's kind of pained because he, he doesn't want to see her this way. He doesn't yeah. want to see her dead. Yeah. And and then then we cut to uh, kind of a bird's eye view from up top, yeah. and then there's a series of cuts coming in, very similar to the death of his father. Now yeah. that since you pointed that out earlier, now I think about it, we have the same thing. He has that moment uh, just to kind of be with her, and then there's a series of cuts where we rejoin the scene, yeah. and then the Christopher Reeve with the the unraveling Superman, and then yeah. the then the cry of anger and Which then is the, really effective <clears throat> i i think that scene is done to perfection oh it's it's oh, i no no argument there um and then he's left with the dilemma of his power um we learned that he can actually really really superman in donner's film uh can really interfere with human history uh he's not supposed to <clears throat> but but you know but it's not a dilemma he is so, um, well, I mean, I don't think he experiences it as a dilemma. We hear the voices. We hear, it is forbidden for you to interfere with human history. But then there's also the voice of, his, of himself. You know, uh, uh, all those things I could do, all those powers, and I couldn't even save him. And in the there's end, father, that's where, There's father. I know. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. His father also pops in. His other father. Yeah. Paul Kent. I yeah. know you're here for a purpose. And, and, and in the end, he, he uh, 
I think in the end, he doesn't make a decision. He just decides on kind of a visceral level, I'm not going to go through that again. I'm not going to lose someone I love uh, and be helpless about it. As he was with Pa Ken. Absolutely. Because the, because the decision is made just like that. Uh, it's almost the scream, a, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like well, he, well, I mean, well, it's almost a, it's almost a fuck you moment to his father because he yeah. starts winding around the and you, all you hear is it is forbidden. Like yeah, he's yeah. trying to talk him out of it, but he just nope, he's not hearing it. Um, and so Superman, uh, everybody, leave the physics aside for a second. Um, <laughs> Superman goes outside the Earth's atmosphere and basically flies around it um, at about. Uh, what I read today was like almost uh, 98% of the speed of light is what we think it is, is what the, what the, the people at, uh, in the trivia section of IMDb think, uh, reversing the flow of Earth. So he's basically taking the Earth back in time. It's a little bit muddled here about how the time stream should work when he comes back, you know? Yeah, yeah. How much happened? How much does he let happen? How much... Does he just take it right up to the point where Lois is about to get in trouble with the uh, earthquakes? It's that's a hazy bit of editing, even in the uh, director's cut. Um, but he comes back and he's able to save her. Um, it seems like maybe he winds it back to the moment just before he dropped a little bit before he dropped Jimmy Olsen off. Yeah, because Olsen comes back into the scene at some point. So I, I don't think they really thought that through. I, uh, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you know this. That scene was not in the original script. Oh, yeah. Uh, they they added that scene. I'm glad they did. Yeah. But they added that scene at the, at the last minute. Because actually the scene where Superman turns back time was supposed to be at the end of the second film. Oh, in the ori- okay. In the original script. Okay. But they were having, they felt like they needed something dramatic to kind of punctuate this movie yeah which it does yeah oh absolutely um now that did mean that donner was was going to have to figure out how to redo the ending of superman 2 which he never got the chance to do yeah but i think that that's part of the original script did not have that scene that scene was decided upon um late in 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 production that 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 shows because it is kind of fuzzy i mean i don't mind it because the scene prior to that the clark unraveling the superman unraveling at the death of lois uh uh is such a good scene that it's fine whatever i can i can kind of i can not nitpick that scene too much uh because he finds her and she's okay when he comes back to the time stream, when he lets Earth go back to normal, and uh, she's Lois, and she's like, the first thing that she does when she gets out of her stalled out car <clears throat> is start bitching. Yeah. Like, you won't believe what happened. I just got away from a gas station that blew up. Uh, I just outran an earthquake. Um, then my car broke down, and, uh, and Clark is so happy. He just so, smiles. He, he just smiles, and Christopher Reeve again, great acting. I'm surprised he wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. Honestly, was oh, he? That's, yeah, um, no, he was not. He was uh, not. But he's like, oh, sorry, Lois, I've been a little busy, <laughs> and uh, and it's a perfect Superman reply. It's a perfect Clark reply, and yeah. then 
And then Clark just leaves he and uh, Jimmy in the desert. But Jimmy's also complaining when he comes running down the road. Well, come on, Superman. You just left me. The earthquake's happening. and uh, Snakes everywhere. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Superman's like, well, I got to go take care of a few things. And he just leaves them there. So um, there's, kind of a, but there's kind of a great moment there. It's only a moment mm-hmm. where uh, you're at when Jimmy's complaining and Lois puts her hand over his mouth. Yep. And there's kind of like, but, but, but Superman's in frame. The three of, all three of them are in, are in the frame. Yep, yep. And she's got her hand on Jimmy's mouth. And there's just a brief moment where you're like, hey, Superman, Lois, and Jimmy. You know, yeah, yeah. The, th- the three of them yeah. who really have not been a, a, a trio yeah. throughout the whole film. They've known each other as Clark and Lois. And, yeah, yeah. But, you know, as we know from the serials or from the comic, the three of them would go on so many adventures together. And here's this moment. There they are. There's the three of them. Yeah, yeah. And you know, with their just kind of very simple banter. It's not a long scene. Yeah. But it, 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 it's it's a great little moment. Absolutely. And then we get uh, this is a another bit when Superman leaves, and Lois and Jimmy are talking, and Lois says, "Wow, this is amazing." And she says something like, uh, "It's too bad Clark isn't here." And then she's like, "Clark isn't." But she says. Yeah. She says, uh, "That's funny. Clark's never around." When... And she doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't say that. We fill it in. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. then we fill in her. Her Clark's never around when Superman's around, and then so she leaves that all unstated, and then she says, "No, that's crazy." Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I think that that's brilliant because just the way that was done, we get to fill in the line. It's almost like. At a concert, when uh, when uh, uh, act you love is doing your favorite song, and then they come to the chorus and they point the mic at the audience, we sing out the the line, and yeah. then they come back for for the yeah. for the callback or whatever. That's kind of what that feels like to me. But but then of course the film brings that brings us to our denouement where Superman deposits. Luther and uh, Otis, Otis, and only Luther and Otis, yes, in the prison, and uh, and we get the only the one and only scene where we see Luther's bald head, um, yeah. and which is a skull cap, I guess, because because Gene Hackman was not about to have his head shaved for the movie. He's like, I'm serving notice. He's serving notice. <laughs> Otis, yeah. Otis is like echoing everything that, yeah, uh, uh, and. Uh, that's funny too because we see that that relationship because Otis is Otis adores Lex Luthor. I don't know why. <laughs> I have no idea why he adores Luther. Um, and he's doing that and uh, he's echoing Luther's every f- phrase. And doesn't doesn't Luther attack him? I mean, shut up! And yeah, yeah he tries yeah. to grab him, and uh, and Superman flies off and. Uh, the warden says something, you know, suitably hokey, you know. Thanks, Superman. You yeah, know, yeah. You, you know what the this nation is. is safe again, Superman. Thanks to you. <laughs> um, like, yeah. Don't and, thank me. We're all part of the same team. But again, see, that's also hokey. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's that kind of New Deal aesthetic that I talked about earlier, though. Cool. Like, you know, the war, the warden, like the society is all part of this well-oiled machine where everyone's interested in justice. Yeah. 
Everyone's interested in doing the same thing. I'm sure this warden is very interested in reforming. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. In inmates, he would never abuse them, right? Yeah. So, yeah. but that that is part of the suit, and that's why you know I would say that this film is is kind of a perfect tribute to the spirit, the original idea of the of the Superman uh, comic in the in the time that it came out. Oh, I uh, I, I think so. I um. I have a few complaints about the movie, um, and I've already voiced one of them, and that was the, I don't know if some of the comedy works, but I think it's beyond that, and beyond the, the date scene where Superman takes Lois for a flight, the f problems with the physics there just interrupt my brain too much. I can't, I hate that scene. I don't like Lois's poem during that scene. Um, uh, there, I like some of the I like some of the ideas in that uh, where she's kind of like confronting the idea that she's hanging out with a god. Well, um, I, I think we lucked out in that scene. By the way, do you know the story behind that? I have no idea. That poem that you just stated was a a, a song written by John Williams oh. that Lois was supposed to sing. I'm so glad that, that didn't happen. The reason it didn't happen is that uh, Lois, or Lois, Margot Kidder did very well in, I mean, they, they loved her in the screen test, okay? Yep. Um, but they said, oh, there's one more thing. Can you sing? And she's like, God, yes, I can. Yeah. And she couldn't. She could not. But, but they had already started filming. So it was actually in the moment they switched it to just her reciting. Yeah. But those were supposed, in fact, I think, the, I think that the lyrics, you know, uh, you know, can you read my mind? Yeah. That the melody to that song that we've never heard yeah. is Lois's theme. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Now that would make sense. Um, I mean, I, that might have worked better as a song. I, you know, uh, I wouldn't have minded that being a song that played over that. And if Margot Kidder could sing it, that would have been fine. But they could have had another actress sing over that scene, and that might have worked. Uh, but I didn't like the poem, and I don't like any of the physics. Like, why is she? Why isn't she like hanging from her wrist vertically down, you know, uh, from Clark? Because they basically, it's like they both can fly for a second. And I'm just like, well, that doesn't work. You know, yeah. either Lois has forearms of steel um, or something is weird. Um, and so I, I, it bugs me a lot. And I, I wish I could get my mind out of it. But I don't like that scene. Um, well, see, okay, that scene is probably my least favorite scene in the movie. Well, uh, I'm, and in fact, I, I cringe a bit that it's probably as good as it was ever going to get because yeah. I do not like the idea of a song being in that scene. I, like so, so I'm pretty grateful that the scene just is what it is. Yeah. Um, but, but I, uh, I don't, I don't particularly like the scene. Um, I think that, um, uh, I, I, I like all the stuff in the apartment. That is great. The interview, the flirting between Lois and Clark. Um, that is perfect Superman. That is like canonical. It's great. Um, when she's asking him uh, about his powers and she's like, uh, can, I, can you, is it true that you can see two things? Well, most things. What color are my underwear? Yeah. You know? And, uh, and he's just, uh, and then she's like, Oh, I, I'm embarrassed. He was like, I know, I you know the planner just must be made of lead. And so then they have, they continue. Oh, she's like, Oh, that's interesting. <clears throat> and she walks off and they're having a conversation. She's saying something and he's like, Oh, pink. 
Yeah. And then she's like, oh, and then she walks back to the planter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To hide her underwear, you know? Yeah. But there's other things, too, that happen in that scene where she's like, uh, she's slipping in her profession a bit because she's also curious. She's a curious woman. She's got a crush on Superman. And she's like, well, how big are you? I mean, how, how tall are you? How, how tall are you? <laughs> and uh, which is, you know, she understood, even though maybe Kansas Clark might not have got what she <laughs> what she might have accidentally been saying. I don't think she actually meant that necessarily, but she meant like, how much do you weigh, I think. But she, her city mind understood the double entendre, you know, whereas Clark was like, I'm sorry. And she said, well, how much do you weigh? You know, I'm taller. And she's like, oh, I'm 6'4", about 2, 2.25. Um, and, uh, and that's a dream boat. She, she 2.25, she's, she's, yeah. she thinks he's dreaming. That, all that scene is great. I even liked, uh, I would have liked some of the flight scenes if they had just been vertical and he'd just been kind of carrying her around the city, you know, instead of trying to do the flying thing, you know, where they're both, where they're both horizontal, like, like he flies. That didn't make sense. Um, yeah. But you're right that uh, the poem doesn't work. The song would never have worked. That movie would have tanked probably based on that scene alone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that, but those are my only major complaints about the movie. That, uh, and I, like I said, I think the comedy gags are great. I just mm -hmm. don't know because of everything that comes in the final act, Luther springing the trap, and how menacing and cold and vicious Luther is. Um, I mean, there are some funny lines in that, but that's uncomfortable laughter that we're having, you know? Yeah, that's true. Luther, yeah. Luther's, Luther's, Luther's cold. He's a psychopath. I mean, that's the only thing I can think you could say about him. I, I, I agree. And, and I think that uh, I always found that to be very interesting that he's, yeah. a, he's this psychopathic character, but he is played for laughs half of the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but Gene Hackman can do that. Oh, Gene Hackman can turn us. He can. He can. You're absolutely right. He can make all that work, and he does. And like I said, I like those scenes of comedy. I just I didn't know if they worked with the pacing and tone. Other than that, those are my only complaints about the film. Uh, <clears throat> I had something I wanted to say, but go on. Go ahead and say whatever you want to say. I don't. Well, I um. Uh, well, I mean, I, I do think there is only one important scene that we skipped over and that okay. was the rescue of the helicopter oh uh, yeah which is so this is the first so lois uh, for the to set the scene lois is about to go to the airport to confront the president of the united states as he gets off air force one so she's going to get on a helicopter that is owned by the Daily Planet. Daily Planet, yeah. Um, to go fly to uh, the airport. Um, and disaster ensues. The helicopter gets caught in some cables and is about to crash, and it crashes on the edge of Daily Planet, the Daily Planet building. It's about to fall off, and Lois is about to fall out. Um, uh, and Superman saves her when she falls. This is the first, this is an hour and 12 minutes into the movie. This is the first time we see Superman. Um, but but there's you know, the famous, uh, uh, don't worry, miss, I've got you. Yep. Uh, you've got me, who's got you? Yeah. And, and it's also the first moment since the credits yep. that, that the 
well, no, I, actually, I take that back. The first, the first reveal that he is Superman is actually in the Fortress of Solitude, where he flies towards the camera. That's right. That's right. Which was the first scene that Christopher Reeve shot. Oh, was it? Well, yeah. it's a great scene. Um, yeah. I think all of the so just a quick aside. I think all of the practical effects of Superman, the non-blue screen effects, where he's obviously on wires. I think that holds up as well as anything today. Like a lot of his like. Christopher Reeve flying through a set mm. uh, on cables works as well as anything today, especially since they, they didn't have the digital capability to erase the wires. You yeah. know? Um, yeah. uh, but anyway, uh, we see Superman. He saves Lois as she's falling to her death. There's a big crowd of people below watching this all happen. Um, and uh, he... One of the great gags in this, in, in the old Superman shows, he would always run into a phone booth to change. And yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike sees this, and he sees Lois about to fall to her death, and he runs, and he's running to a phone booth. But by this time in 1978, they had, maybe some of our listeners won't even know what the fuck a phone booth is. now. That I <laughs> but it was a place where they used to store phones, and you could go in and talk to them. It's just a half booth with no doors and no, no place to basically be alone. And so he uh, goes to a, uh, tur a turnstile-style door and goes around really fast and ends up in the uh, Superman outfit and comes out. And uh, I think a pimp and some yeah. hookers see him, and he's like, cool outfit, man, or something. And he's like, excuse me, sir, stand back. And, and he flies up, and, uh, and Lois falls as, uh, in one of the scenes just before that. And... Uh, and what's that? Oh my God, that man caught her. You know, yeah. we get a lot of like chatter from the crowd. It's pretty great. Which is to me, the chatter from the crowd. Yo, I can't believe that he got her. And, yeah. oh, and, that's then, right. and, and, then they, and then the helicopters fall. And, the, and then everyone, and then suddenly everyone's gasping again. The music suddenly goes back to, you know, this kind of frantic sounds on the strings, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then back to the Superman theme when he grabs the helicopter with one hand yep. and everyone is cheering, which is also very much a Superman. Oh yeah. Thing. Well, you know, we, I mean, that scene is so effective because uh, he is rushing up to get that helicopter. It's falling down and he grabs, like you said, he grabs it with one hand and we see, well, this guy is really something else because he doesn't strain. He just arrests the motion right away. And, uh, He's kind of showing off for Lois, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and Christopher Reeve is con the actor is conveying that pretty well too. It's pretty low key, but he is showing off a little bit. And he takes her up, and he sets the helicopter down, and then we get the famous line. <laughs> I hope this won't put you off flying, Miss. And he's about to leave, and he's he turns back as a, as if he's had an afterthought. Statistically speaking, it's the safest way to travel, you know, and. I mean, that is Clark, that's Kansas, that's his, you know, just homey, uh, kind of stoic. I mean, Clark mm -hmm. Kent is a stoic guy. Superman is a stoic guy. And, uh, but it's a great introduction for these two iconic characters, Lois and Superman, you know? And then, and then after, and then he says goodnight, and there's this great shot of him flying away in like this arc. Yeah. Um, but she uh, said, as he's leaving, she says, Wait, wait, who are you? A friend. A friend. And then you get that arc. Yep. 
Yeah, I, I that that whole sequence is just absolutely fantastic, iconic. Yep. yep. Uh, and then, of course, he has his first night of action, yep. which all all those scenes are 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 great. You know, it's a standing, great montage. Yeah, standing on the side of the building, uh, just taking care of cat burglars and yep. you know guys that are engaged in a heist, and you know none of them are a threat to him at all. No, and, no. Uh, but 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 we get to see Superman, you know, um, um, feeling his way, you know, having his first night where he's, he's going out there and, and finding out what he can do and showing off what he can do. And he's, um, having, he's having fun. He's, he's yeah. like, uh, that's something else that I kind of like about that scene. I think I only noticed it this time, how much fun Clark Kent is having saving yeah. the day. I mean, he's, he's throwing one-liners that are, Kind of hokey out there is, is at his at his foes. These people who can't hurt him, um, the cat burglar who uh, is just so focused on what he's doing and he's like little uh, the cat burglar scaling the side of a glass building with suction cups, and he puts one on the boot of Superman who's standing on the building, which is a great effect. It's a great scene. I mean, it's a it is it is Adam West and uh, Dick Grayson walking up a, a side. A building that's on its side they're not really hanging vertically you know yeah, it's a yeah, great yeah. scene and uh but i mean it's an old effect but it, it's really effective in this movie and superman says to the cat burglar something wrong with the elevator <laughs> dude it's horrifying and uh um <laughs> and then superman kind of like he smiles he's he's having fun as this guy's yeah. falling the guy thinks he's falling to his death but superman uh flies past him is like going down and i mean it's just it's just a guy just having a blast doing something that makes him feel good which is saving lives or stopping crime and uh you know i mean he's not joking when he says he's here to help you know defend truth justice and, uh, what he sees as the american way yeah which i you know that line will never be will never be spoken again no no the, uh but christopher reeve uh, was able to deliver it. Oh, yeah. Um, but again, I also would contend that the reason that is is because this movie, even though it takes place in the 70s, yeah. is very much uh, uh, a callback to um, this kind of this kind of 1930s, 40s progressive America yeah. that that uh, that people believed in, and and that and that in 1978 was seen as being gone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, Superman uh, almost seems, the 78 Superman almost seems like a, I, I don't think Donner intended it this way, but a defense of that ideal that we used to, that, that Americans used to cherish about itself. You know, America, we have these ideas about America itself. And uh, in 78, nobody was feeling that way. I mean, we're still, that's right. Yeah. 75, we're still uh, 75. Vietnam had just kind of really ended. Um, yeah. the, the country had endured Watergate. Yeah. Um, and uh, the country had endured uh, all of the malfeasance of Westmoreland in Vietnam, you know, who kept saying things are fine, you know. Uh, uh, and I think in 78, people were still reeling from Cronkite's address about Vietnam. You know what I mean? It was Cronkite, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the nation, this movie is, is an escapism. No, absolutely. Or, or, or it is, it, it was escapism 
for uh, Americans who were living through the 1970s. Yeah. The, you know, the 1970, as you've just rehearsed, yeah. uh, that was not a period where people actually were feeling very patriotic. That's not, I mean, that was a time period where people, their confidence in America had really waned and waned very quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we walked on the moon, and, you know, less than 10 years earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, no. Or about, or about 10 years earlier. And, uh, and there was this sense that, you know, that, that, that there was always progress. There was always this kind of, of uh, that the United States was always kind of moving in the right direction. Yeah. And by the end of the decade, that was gone. Yeah. And then this, this film comes along that uh, you have Superman talking about truth, justice in the American way again. Yeah. So it, it was a bit of escapism. It, it, it was a bit of a nod back to an America that people at the time would have remembered. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Now see, now see people today, uh, young people today <laughs> would not. No, I don't. I, um, I, I appreciate that vision of America though. And I, I, I like that vision. I, I think that it's not, uh, I think Superman, 78 could function not just as nostalgia, not just as a pining for that time, but maybe also <clears throat> an inspiration. I mean, one of the things I do like about heroes like Superman, and uh, we mentioned him earlier, like Captain America, um, is that they do more than function as hero stories. I think they also are kind of inspirational, you know, uh, I intended to write an essay for a blog of mine a few years ago, um, and I keep toying with the idea. Do you remember in the early 90s, the what would Jesus do? Yeah. Uh, the, everybody was wearing the bracelets. Wearing the bands, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always thought that that was a, maybe not the best way to encourage people to think about uh, what actions they take, because take Jesus in half his moods, you know, you can, you can find something <laughs> You know, uh, right. uh, the Gospels aren't exactly uh, uniform in their message about what Jesus said. Um, uh, anyway, but I always thought you could do a better version of that with like, what would Captain America do? Or what would Spider-Man do? You know what I mean? Um, these are guys, uh, Superman is in that class of people who are always striving to do the right thing. And I like that about Superman. Um, I like that, I mean, the character himself was always an anti-racist character, you know? Yeah. Like uh, the radio show Superman was instrumental in exposing the Klan's ideas to the wider public. Right. Um, uh, I've seen little blurbs from old DC comic books where Superman's like, now remember kids, don't be mean to somebody because of their religion or the color of their skin. We're all Americans, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, it goes back to that new deal spirit of, of we're all in this together. But I liked, I liked that. I like that idea. I, I like that America. Um, it's harder to find now. I mean, like in 78, uh, gosh, there was probably nobody watching that film who still trusted the government. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Uh, but they trusted Superman. They trusted and, Superman. And, and we trust Superman in the film. Yeah. And, and that film is able to to, land, to to stick that landing very well. I Absolutely. Think. Well, I think it does that in part because of how well it does Kansas. And we see that heartland America. And I don't want to just link 
American values to the heartland. But what I want to link it to is like hardworking people who are trying to bring up their kids as best they can in a troubling uh, time in troubling times or not even in troubling times, but you know, life throws uh, curveballs at you or meteors with babies in the match. Um, and you do the best you can. And I, I think that, that, that can happen in the, the uh, big city. It can happen in <laughs> rural Kansas. Um, but the other thing that I think happens in 78, crime is on the rise in the 70s. Um, you know, uh, Metropolis definitely reflects, I mean, that, that scene a bit, especially with un, what I call under Metropolis. Uh, and then, but even, even in the upper Metropolis, it's glitzy, it's, it's fun. Lois apartment, Lois's apartment. I mean, she must be a super award-winning journalist because she's got like bank because she has a fine apartment. Yeah. Um, uh, and she would be the first to tell you she's a successful reporter. Do you remember the scene when she's talking to Perry and she's like, do you remember that dynamite article I wrote? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, for the yeah. uh, uh, I can't remember what it was about, but she's like she's not humble at all. But no, she's not. Although, although uh, I don't know if you noticed uh, the, the the kind of subtle in jokes about the Daily Planet because he he criticizes her. He says, you know, this is like tabloid garbage or whatever. Yeah. But then there's a moment later where uh, White uh, he picks up a phone and he's like, um, um, "What have you got on that Loch Ness story?" I mean. Like there's a lot of evidence that that actually all these reporters at the at the Daily Planet they're kind of peddling tabloid stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but she she seems to be a successful reporter. Um, but so she represents the penthouse life of of Metropolis, which is I mean kind of a stand-in for New York in this movie. But when she gets mugged, I mean that is that was a very visceral fear of New Yorkers at the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, which is a great gag too, by the way. But, um, but yeah, I, I just think, uh, I can't say enough good things about this movie. I, like I said, I know you and I differ a little bit on how appropriate the comedy is, but I think if you're looking to see an iconic and important movie in the comic book genre, I mean, you have to see Superman 1978. Well, I, I, I think it starts with this. I, um, if you catch me on the right day and it is the right day, by the way, Okay, okay. um, this is my favorite. Yeah, it's, it's still my number one. I uh, every time I watch it, I always just think this is perfect. Yeah, I you know I mean, well we both talked about some things that would change. You know, yeah. you mentioned the comedy. We both mentioned the the uh, can you read my mind uh, moment. But you know, in, in the big picture, those are things that I can forgive. Yeah, and in fact, the comedy makes me laugh. So yeah. I, I to me, it is a perfect film. I think the score, and, and you know. This is a big statement because we all know everyone knows John Williams. This is this is one of his top three scores. I think so. Uh, and 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 when I say that, I'm uh, I'm assuming that Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back are seen as two different, you know, are rated separately because I think both those scores are so good that you know that they might be one and two. But I think this score is better than his score for Jaws. Better than his Indiana Jones scores. Oh, whoa, of, whoa, whoa, okay. Whoa, but, but I mean, I hear explain, you. Okay, but let me explain why. Because I, first of all, the the super, the main theme is is absolutely as iconic as the Indiana Jones, 
a Star Wars. It's right up there. Everyone knows it, right? Yeah. But then like the, and here's where I'm going to make my case. Like the Empire Strikes Back, it gives us, you know, the Imperial March. Leia's theme, these uh, Yoda's theme. Actually, I would say Empire is probably William's masterpiece, but this, it gives us Lois' theme, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, kind of very melodic and romantic. It gives us the, the Krypton music, yeah, which is very regal and uh, regal, but also a little frightening and bizarre. Yeah. I, like I, I actually, those horns used to kind of scare me or startle me. Yeah. And uh, and then there's and then there's all the Kansas stuff, and uh, which is totally different again. There's Otis's theme. Like yeah. there's a lot. Otis's which, theme is pretty great. Yeah. Well, but but I mean, look at what I just described. I mean, oh, yeah. I just, I mean. You just go down the line, and Williams came up with with uh, amazing uh, uh, cues and and themes for these characters that uh, uh, are all memorable. They all uh, uh, really uh, do great service to the film. I mean, when you hear the Superman theme and he grabs the helicopter, oh, yeah. you want to cheer with the crowd. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But part of the reason that you want to cheer. Because that music that is in your ears, and uh, what's odd is that when people think of John Williams, because everyone always they think of Star Wars and Spielberg, yeah, and pe some people forget that he did this score. They do. It's true, and it's a. I mean, it's a great score. Um, I don't know if I could put it above Indiana Jones, but I mean, it's very. I, it's got to be close to equal, at least in my mind. Um, I do think it's better than the Jaws score. I think the Jaws score is, I mean, the Jaws score is amazingly effective. But yeah. I, I mean, I think I'm with you for the most part. Um, you realize that it almost wasn't Williams, right? No. It, it was almost the guy who did Omen. Well, that makes sense. Sidebar. The composer's name I couldn't remember was Jerry Goldsmith. He had worked with Donner on The Omen, and Donner had really wanted him to do this film as well. So endeth the sidebar. But for some reason, he couldn't do it. And John Williams jumped at the opportunity, uh, apparently. Like, it was offered, and he wow. was like, oh, I'll do this, yeah. But it was going to be, I can't remember the guy who did The Omen, um, but that guy would later on get a chance to do the uh, score for Supergirl. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> Which I will have to watch at some point, um, but uh, well, that was a salt kind movie. Are you yeah, aware of that? I, yeah. I, I I was I think I was aware of it. Um, I am also aware that it has to be better than Superman Four. So, <laughs> um, so I'm going to give it a try at some point. Um, but uh, but no, the score of Superman is great. The uh, the layering. Uh, so the score also blends well with the visual chapters. I mean, like. No, I think that this is a fine American movie. And like, even if you're not into comic book movies so much per se, I think you you will get a kick out of Superman. Uh, 1978's uh, a great film from 1978. Yeah. And, and you know, and I have to say, uh, when I was very young, it was not my favorite. Superman 2 was my favorite. Well, it's, and, I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's a slow, slow movie. Uh, family, but now... My, I appreciate everything that it does. Um, I, I have to say this, uh, I, uh, real quick, re returning to the helicopter scene, 
Um, I was watching this with my son. And when all hell is breaking loose, Lois is hanging from the seatbelt of the helicopter because she, she's trying to get out. Um, Finn screamed at the TV. Why is nobody helping her? <laughs> and, and I was like, oh my God, because there's like two or three crew people on top of the building. They are nowhere to be seen during this catastrophe. They're <laughs> far away. And like Finn was incensed. <laughs> nobody was coming to try and get people out of the helicopter. I mean, those people could have affected that rescue. You know, yeah. before the helicopter goes over, they could have got Lois, they could have got the guy. They, I wonder if they weren't drunk like the cop from earlier in the film, you know. Uh, Officer, Officer Mooney? Mooney. Um, uh, but but I just thought that was funny uh, because uh, maybe they were just so flabbergasted that they, they didn't know what to make of it. But, but like, I just thought that was a, a funny bit where, why is nobody helping her? <laughs> well, I... I, I, I really, really, really adore this movie. And every time I watch it, I find more reasons. You found reasons, uh, you know, little in-jokes and things that I still haven't seen after yeah. seeing it 20, 30, 20 or 30 times. Uh, I, I just, I, I love the movie. I think that uh, I do know that a lot of directors, you mentioned Christopher Nolan, but certainly, certainly, Brian Singer, almost too, almost a little bit almost too much. Almost too Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, have adored this movie and seen it as this is what we're this is what we're shooting for. This yeah. is the kind of feel that we want to have. And Richard Donner, you and I are both fans. Yep. Uh, if you ask Richard Donner today what his best film was, this he one. thinks it's Superman. And now for our final verdict. After long and meaningful discussion, Max and I have decided that this movie is to be highly recommended to all listeners out there. Uh, we differed somewhat on the, uh, the comedy bits that are in the film, but uh, uh, overall, I would say that uh, we would recommend it. And I would personally say that it is still the all-time champ comic book movie in my book. Okay. Um, I, that's going a little far for me, but... Uh, I think I think we're closer on this than we have been in the past. This has a, been a movie that we've we've debated for years, and uh, now I'm I'm much closer to saying it's it's foundational. Uh, everybody should definitely see Superman the movie. And that is our verdict. All right, guys, that's it for episode five of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it. Um, we're working out the technical issues and trying to get our rhythm down. But uh, anyway, next week we will be tackling Superman 2, uh, which came out just a few years, uh, just a year later, I think. Uh, but we'll talk more next week. Uh, that's all I got. See you soon. Why is nobody helping her? <laughs> if you catch me on the right day, and it is the right day, by the way. I lost my train of thought. Where was I? Jason, sorry. And, uh, oh, it's disappointing. The wine has ended. But the movie hasn't, so let's continue. Um,